it is my honor and privilege and pleasure to serve here at Moncton Wesleyan. Uh, looking out at all of you all, I was uh, pretty nervous uh, 30 minutes ago, but as soon as I stood up on the stage and look out at you, I think, hey, this is my family. These are my friends. So they won't make fun of me when I mess up, right? They won't think, what is that singing guy doing up there speaking? Or without a guitar and a shoulder and a mic stand in front of him. Um, well, the truth is, I, I have had the privilege of speaking here a few times in the past, but it's been a couple of years since. And I've, I've always been able to speak on things like um, worship and creativity and art and things that I, I know a little bit about, uh, things that tend to make you feel good, things that tend to inspire you, but not today. No. Today is different. Today, I'm speaking to you about pain, perseverance, suffering. Are you excited? (laughs) All right, here we go. Here we go. Uh, You know, but don't despair because I'm also going to talk about uh, perseverance, faithfulness, and ultimately victory. Victory in the face of life's most difficult circumstances. If we choose to walk with God and not run from God when the going gets tough. So let's get started. Let's pray together. Father, I am just so excited to be standing here with this word that you've laid in my heart. God, I pray that uh, the words that I speak would be your words and not my own. I pray that the hearts and the ears and the minds that listen to them would be open to what you have to say to them this morning. You are a good, good father to us. You have our best interests at heart and we trust you. And we look forward to what you're going to share with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been in this series called Going Viral for the entire summer now. We've been looking at how the church expanded in the the first century and actually over many, many uh, millennia, uh, but particularly throughout the book of Acts. We've seen how God has used spiritual gifts. We've seen how he's used humility, love, sacrifice, signs and wonders, prayer to grow grow the church from 12 apostles to literally thousands and thousands and thousands of believers in the first century. You know, it was probably the biggest revival in history, but we couldn't really call it a revival because it had never happened before, so the re doesn't really apply. But a lot of people came to Christ in a relatively short amount of time. It was awesome, and it happened without the use of, you know, Facebook memes, uh, catchy tweets, YouTube cat videos, viral stuff like that that we know about. And we think Christianity went viral for three major reasons. Number one, Christ rose from the dead. That was pretty big. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. If, if on Friday I witnessed Pastor Tim die, and I came to church this morning, and he's sitting here right in front of me, after I was done freaking out, I would probably tell some people about it. Right? Not just people I know. I'd probably run up and down the streets of Moncton telling people about it. So Christ's resurrection was pretty big because people saw him die, and people saw him rise from the dead. Signs and wonders were one way that God used uh, the apostles to grow his church in the early years. People tend to stand up and take notice when you cure them of lameness. Because lame people can't stand. Also radically different teaching. Okay, the teaching of, of the early church was radically different than what anybody had heard before, right? The first shall be last, the meek shall inherit the earth. 
saved by grace, not by works, and so on and so forth. This whole idea of the upside-down kingdom of God was really important to the growth of the church. So where does pain fit into this picture? We all know about Christ's suffering, his ultimate sacrifice on the cross, but what I want to know is how is pain contagious? How does pain go viral? Well, for anyone wondering what could possibly be appealing about the pain and suffering of others, I'm going to submit to you Exhibit A. Word of warning, some of this might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Not a whole lot of intelligence was used in the filming of some of these clips. Boy, guys. Hey, go, 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 go. So that's, that's one way that pain can go viral. Uh, we simply cannot look away from the suffering of other people, especially when that suffering seems to be localized to the crotch region. I don't know why. And why is that? What is wrong with us? I mean, not only can't we look away, we laugh. I mean, you, most of you were laughing. We're truly sick people. But Fail Army, who is the, the company that puts these videos out, literally gets millions and millions of views on YouTube every week. And that particular video was posted at the end of July. It's up to 8 million views already. Also, I should give another disclaimer about Fail Army. If you decide to go there and check out what Fail Army is doing on YouTube, word to the wise, this clip was actually edited for church. Okay? I'll leave it at that. Uh, Fortunately, this pain, of course, is not generally the pain that God uses to grow his church. If he did, evangelism would be very painful and maybe a little bit hilarious. However, the kind of pain God uses to build his church, it's also the kind of pain he often uses to build character in his people. It's the kind of pain that either inspires perseverance or despair in the lives of its sufferers. Henry Blackaby is a man who's written many great books, uh, some of which are Experiencing God and uh, The Man God Uses. And he says... The fact that God can bring character development and personal growth out of any situation is conditional on people's willingness to submit to God's will. He brings not only healing but growth out of even the worst experiences 
every relationship can be God's instrument to mature a person's character. See, it's not simply the suffering or the bad situation itself that carries the power to build God's kingdom in one heart or in the hearts of many, like the church. We're not all sadists. Um, It's instead the faithfulness of God's people, because he himself first was faithful, in the face of persecution. This is what has truly helped Christianity grow from a few people practicing in an upper room to literally two billion, more than two billion believers worldwide today. It's a faithfulness that is born out of a willingness to submit to God's will, as Blackaby says, in even the most difficult of circumstances. So let's get into God's word. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to open with me to Acts 26, 19 to 29. Paper Bibles, devices, it doesn't matter. It's going to be on the screen as well. Here we read a portion of the Apostle Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. He was the king of the Jewish nation and the Jewish elders in Jerusalem. Beginning at verse 19, Paul says, And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus. The vision he's talking about is is his conversion story when Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road. He says he preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. That's a common theme in Paul's life. But God has protected me right up to this present time, so I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and in this way, announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Suddenly, Festus shouted. Festus was the Roman governor. He shouted, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. But Paul replied, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains, of course. So before we unpack what this scripture means, what I think it can mean for us, let's examine how Paul ended up in front of the king on trial for his life, but still preaching boldly this message that Christ had given him, the very message that was landing him in so much hot water with the king and the Jewish people. See, when we look back in the book of Acts, we can establish a pattern of behavior for Paul that has led to this moment. So let's turn to Acts 21, verses 11 to 14. This is the beginning of of Paul's difficult time uh, with the Romans and the Jews. It says, Several days later, a man named Agapus, this is before all this stuff happened with Agrippa, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But he said, why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. 
So here we read that Paul received prophecy that if he proceeded to Jerusalem, he would be bound and handed over to the Gentile authorities or the Jewish authorities, Gentile authorities, that's right. So what does he do? He shrugs it off. He even kind of makes fun of them, right? Oh, you're breaking my heart. And he goes anyway. Of course, we read on in this chapter, and I don't have time to read through the entire, uh, you know, four chapters of Acts there, but we read on that Paul is indeed seized by a Jewish mob shortly after he arrives in Jerusalem, as the prophecy foretold. He's accused of teaching against the Jewish tradition, and he's beaten mercilessly by an angry mob. Until a Roman commander arrives with his regiment and rescues him from the mob. What does Paul do in that situation? He doesn't say, oh, thank you so much. These guys are trying to kill me. Get me the heck out of here. He says, um, just wait a minute. I just, I just want to say something to this angry mob that's been trying to kill me for this last hour. This is radically different. So he stands up on the stairs. He motions for the crowd to be quiet. And they do. This is the crowd that's been trying to kill him for the last who knows how long. But Paul's attitude is relentless. He is fearless. And that kind of attitude demands attention. He perseveres because he knows that the message he carries is the matter of life and death for those that hear it. He perseveres because he knows that God is in the business of turning painful circumstances. That's our next slide, guys. God is in the business of turning painful circumstances into powerful second chances. Moments of redemption that display his glory and his ultimate dominion over all creation. As the popular saying goes, Jesus will turn your mess into a message. That's right. He will. Paul knows this better than anybody because of the way that he was converted. And I think Pastor Drew spoke on that a few weeks ago so beautifully. So if you don't know how Paul was converted, I don't have time to get into it here, but read Acts chapter 9 or go on our website and check out Drew's sermon from a few weeks ago. In fact, you know, it's Paul's conversion story that he ends up sharing with the Jewish people when he arrives. And he's doing all right until he mentions that God sent him to be the minister to the Gentiles. And that was a big no-no in Jewish tradition because Yahweh was the God of the Jews and the Jews alone. Paul says, well, I'm going to preach to everybody who isn't Jewish. And they don't like that. So they beat him and try to kill him. At this point, Paul invokes his rights as a Roman citizen to a trial. Roman citizens back then had specific rights and privileges that weren't afforded to the rest of the Roman Empire. So he earns a trial in front of uh, some Jewish elders, the Jewish council, and uh, the high priest Ananias. Uh, He preaches boldly again in front of Ananias. And again... Another group of men conspire to kill him. This time it's an elite group of 40 who take a sacred oath not to rest until Paul is dead. The Roman commander gets word of this again. He says, how many times do I have to protect this guy? This guy's driving me crazy. I'm going to send him to Caesarea with no less than 470 soldiers as an escort. You can look it up. To meet with the governor Felix because he is a Roman citizen. Paul gets there before the Roman governor in Caesarea. He again testifies boldly before Felix. Some Jewish uh, detractors have followed him to make their case against him. They get angry again at Paul. He keeps going. Felix is terrified of the Jewish nation. 
These are the people that he's been called to govern. He doesn't want to incite a riot. So he just keeps Paul in prison for two years. He says, I'm just not going to deal with you. You just hang out in that dungeon. Eventually, Felix is replaced by Festus, who we read about as Roman governor. And the Jews take up with Festus to persecute Paul yet again. Right right around the same time, King Agrippa, who was the king of the Jewish nation, comes to Caesarea to pay his respects to Festus, who's the new governor. Festus says, hey, I'm just about to try one of your kinsmen. Will you preside over the trial with me? And that's kind of where we are in Acts chapter 26. So Paul has literally been through two years of imprisonment and a living hell, the likes of which most of us here will never experience. Most of us will never be pursued, chased, beaten by an angry mob kept in prison for two years, and still, there's no let up in him. He doesn't back down. His mission is as clear as ever. His passion is as fiery as ever. He speaks as boldly as ever. His years of imprisonment actually have only served to strengthen his message, but because who on earth would cling to these things in the face of such persecution if they weren't, in fact, true? Paul is so convincing that Agrippa himself, king of the Jewish nation, says, hey, be careful, you're about to make a Christian out of me. And then Paul shows us his own heart by saying, well, that's what I want. And that's what I want for everybody here, including all these people that have been trying to kill me for two years. Oops. Bear with me. So what can we learn from Paul's behavior? in the face of such adversity, in the face of such pain and persecution, because I can't imagine that it feels good to be beaten mercilessly by an angry mob. I think the answer is twofold. And as with so many things, we can find the answers in Scripture, actually in something that Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Church, So much of a life lived well in the service of God demands perseverance through many painful circumstances. I mean, so much of life in general demands that. Forget about the part about serving God. And if you're alive, raise your hand if you're alive. A few of you are not alive this morning. Okay, that's interesting. If you're alive and you still hope to be alive in 30, 40, 50 years and so on, chances are you're going to go through some stuff. Maybe you've already been through some stuff. You know what's crazy about this is that Jesus actually tells us that we will go through some stuff. In John 16, he says, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. You will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. I, I don't want to. I don't want to be morose or depressing or <laughs> leave you with this thought that you've got to walk out of this with your shoulders slumped, going, "Gosh, might as well kill myself now," because you know <laughs> Scripture also says that Christ came to give us life and that to the full. So there's a lot of good things out there for you as well. But the truth is that no one gets through this life unscathed. That is the truth. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Shirley. I, gotta, I, I just want to take a little aside here because this, this, this teaching kind of bothers me when I see 
um, what some preachers are, are preaching about prosperity and blessing. And I just feel like I need to say, how dare some of those guys tell us that it's because of our lack of faith that we don't enjoy financial blessing or that we have illness in our lives or that we go through struggles. How dare they tell us that it's because of our lack of faith? You know what? There are literally hundreds of millions of Christians living in abject poverty all over the world, each of who has more faith than this entire room, myself included. How dare those guys tell those people that if they just believe harder and believe better, that God will bless them with mansions. Right? That is ridiculous. Friends, in this life, when it comes to pain, when it comes to trouble, it's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. And the only thing you can control is how you react to it. Thank you. Will you persevere in faith like the Apostle Paul? Or will you give up? Will you submit your will to God, as Henry Blackaby suggests in his quote? Or will you pack it in and believe the lie, excuse me, <clears throat> the devil keeps whispering in your ear? God doesn't care about you. You're all alone. You'll never be good enough. But those are lies. Church, I know we aren't all the Apostle Paul. We all haven't had a face-to-face encounter with the living Christ. We don't all have his faith, not to mention his fiery personality. But let me urge you to cling to God's promises, even in the midst of your fear, your doubt, and your despair, because God is in the redemption business. He doesn't promise you won't have pain. He promises the exact opposite. You will have pain. But he also says... I will work all things together for the good of those that love me. Here's what it's like. Here's what it's like to live the Christian life in the midst of pain and perseverance. Let me see that next slide, guys. His plan, his purpose, his timing, our good. We don't always understand his plan. We don't always understand his purpose. We don't always understand his timing, but we better believe that it's for our good. Just like you tell your kids to brush their teeth and they say, why I hate brushing my teeth and say, believe me, it's for your own good. You want your teeth when you're 60 years old. I also love uh, what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. So after he's been through an ordeal of his own and he's risen to prominence in Egypt, he says, what the devil meant for evil, God intended for good. Paul's perseverance in the face of hardship, it meant the rapid growth of the church in the first century. What the devil meant for evil in the hearts of some Jewish zealots, God intended for good in the witness of a man who would not deny Christ in the face of extreme adversity. So God has used this strategy time and time again to grow his church. In fact, God is an absolute master of turning his enemies' weapons against him. I want to jump forward a couple thousand years and just briefly look at the growth of Christianity in another part of the world, in communist China. Chairman Mao rose to power, and he sought to destroy Christianity completely. Right, he tore down houses of worship. He executed Christians and other believers the Communist Party of China is actually the largest atheist organization in the world. 
But Christianity has proven hard to control in China. And it's getting harder all the time. In an article from The Telegraph, dated April 20th, 2014, there's a reporter who writes, Today, less than four decades after Chairman Mao's death, some believe China is now poised to become not just the world's number one economy, but also its most numerous Christian nation. China's Protestant community, that's right, which had just one million members in 1949, has already overtaken those of countries more commonly associated with an evangelical boom. In fact, in 2010, there were more than 58 million Protestants in China, compared to 40 million in Brazil and 36 million in South Africa. Experts believe that number will swell to around 160 million by 2025. That would likely put China ahead of even the United States, which had around 159 million Protestants in 2010, but whose congregations are in decline. The Mao thought he could eliminate religion. He thought he had accomplished it. It's ironic that he failed completely. So what happened? How did China go from being the world's most hostile environment for Christians to possibly one of the largest Protestant nations on earth in 50 short years? Many things probably contributed to that. There was an underground church, bold missionaries crossing the borders constantly, just uncaring for the danger. Uh, Chairman Mao died in 1976, and that opened some things up. Uh, But a lot of uh, scholars believe that there's one thing in particular that uh, really helped. And it's a really neat situation. It's an effort to consolidate his power and establish the dominance of the Communist Party. Chairman Mao imposed one language on the entirety of China. China was a country of dialects, a lot of rural places, and and Chairman Mao said, you know what, I want everybody to speak the same language. So he made it law that Mandarin Chinese was taught in Chinese elementary schools. Unwittingly, he opened the door for the spread of God's word throughout the entire country of China because now every living Chinese could read God's word in Mandarin because they were all learning Mandarin. So Wycliffe and the people in the Bible translation places were like, awesome, here's thousands and thousands and thousands of Bibles in Mandarin and we don't have to translate into a hundred different dialects and you get to read God's word. That's exactly what happened. So God flipped the script on that. What the devil meant for evil, God intended for good. I'm going to tell you another story. Uh, This one's a little bit more personal. It comes from my own life. Uh, Barb and I, early in our marriage, uh, how many have met my wife, Barb, and our beautiful children, Madison and Amelia? Well, early in our marriage, and we've been married for 13 years now, um, we were told that we could never have children. Not... um, that you have a very slim chance of having children, that we will never have children. You can imagine that that was devastating for us. We were young, we had plans, we had dreams, and um, it was really difficult. It almost led to the demise of our relationship at one point. Uh, But we decided to persevere. We decided to trust God. We loved each other. We believed in our marriage and our relationship, and we forged ahead. Moved out west for a while, lived in Vancouver for a while. And we just got this urge when we were living out there that God was calling us back to the East Coast. Happens a lot when us Maritimers leave. So it wasn't a big surprise. Um, But we didn't really want to come because we loved Vancouver. It's a gorgeous city. We had great friends, but uh, most of our family was still back here. So we said, you know what, let's explore this. Let's go. 
And, uh, you know, looking back on that decision, I can't believe the ways in which God has chosen to bless us um, for making and taking that step. What did happen, what I want to tell you about this morning, is that when we came back, we got to know um, my growing family a little bit better. And uh, my sisters had been recently married, were having kids of their own, and uh, it was through one of their in-laws, actually, my sister's sister-in-law, she got to know us at a party somewhere, heard our story that we couldn't have children. We were looking at adoption. And, and by the way, adoption is an amazing option. And we are actually still on the adoption list locally here for New Brunswick. Uh, but we always just had this really strong um, pull and desire that there was something else for us. So we met this girl. And she, out of the blue, barely knew us. I think we met twice. Said, I wonder if I could be a surrogate for you. So... If any women in the audience this morning who have given birth, carried children to term, you know what kind of offer that is. Um, we didn't even know if it was possible, so we said, well, let us, let's look into it, and we did, and it turned out that it was possible through modern science and IVF and whatnot that this woman could be a surrogate for us and, and help us um, have children of our own. So it was a long journey, and I'm not going to bore you with all of the details, but uh, when we went to have the procedure performed uh, up in Toronto, um, they implant a couple of embryos, and you just kind of hope that one of them takes. Two of them took. Nine months later, she gave birth to two beautiful, healthy, six-and-a-half-pound baby girls. So she had like 13 pounds of baby in her at one point. God bless her. Um, and one of them looks like me, and one of them looks like her mother. And it's unbelievable what God chose to do in that situation based on a few really minor decisions that Barb and I made in the face of some adversity in our lives. And I'm not saying that if you're struggling with giving birth this morning, or if you're struggling having children, that that is the way God is going to choose to turn your situation around. Uh, that was very specific to us, and God has many different blessings in store for his children, you know, when they decide to follow him and persevere through difficult circumstances. So don't imagine or despair that just because that doesn't happen in your life means that God doesn't care about you. But that's what happened in our life. And what the devil meant for evil, God intended for good. Nowhere is this more evident than at the cross. The devil thought he had God beat. He manipulated the hearts of men and women to condemn, torture, and crucify God's own son. Jesus Christ endured more pain and suffering than you or I can even imagine. He bled. He died. But he never wavered. His will remained in perfect submission to the will of the Father. We know that it tore him up inside. Right? If this cup can be taken from me, Father, please take it. Not my will. Yours be done. We all know how that story ends. And let me close with this, that the living Christ is living proof that pain might win the day, but it will never win the war. Because Jesus is alive. Church, as I close this morning, thank you so much uh, for your attention and your encouragement. Um, but I have something that I want to request of you, and it might take a little bit of courage.
So steal yourselves. If any of this has hit home with you this morning, if you are currently in a situation that seems insurmountable, you are facing odds that have you feeling desperate. Maybe you're struggling with conceiving on your own. Maybe you've had children and lost one. I can't imagine what that's like. Maybe you're dealing with some kind of financial emergency, some kind of crisis at work or in the family. You've lost a loved one in your family. Those tens of circumstances that God tends to place before us that create this crisis of faith tend to be matters of life, death, and money. So if you're facing anything like that this morning, I wonder, like if you're currently in it, I wonder if you would have the courage to stand just where you're at. You don't have to come forward. Just stand where you're at because I want to pray for you. I want to tell you this, that C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. So if God is shouting at you right now in the middle of some kind of painful circumstance, please stand. Thank you. Thank you. You're not alone. Look around. Second group of people. If you've experienced something like this, some kind of matter of life, death, or money, and you had to choose between despair and perseverance, and God saw you through to the other side, to a new day, not necessarily a better day, because some losses... We just can't account for the sight of heaven. But he saw you through to a new day. And he proved that he was faithful in the midst of your darkest hour. I wonder if you would stand as well. God is faithful. Look at those of you going through stuff right now. Look around. You are not alone. And God is right there with you. And these people that stood second are proof that he will see you through. Let me pray for you this morning. God, we are so thankful that we can count on a good, good father. God, I pray for that first group that stood, that you would help them see through whatever circumstance is lying in their way. That they could know that you do still love them. You do still care for them. And what the devil is meaning for evil in their lives, you will turn to good if they submit their will to you. God, I pray for courage and strength, but above all, faithfulness for them. As they look to you and you alone. And I pray against the words and the schemes and the lies of the devil that would tell them that they are alone, that you don't care for them, and that they're no good. They are children of the living God. God, I thank you for what you've done in the lives of this second group. I pray that when the next trial comes their way, they would look back on what you've done and where you've taken them and understand that you have them. You got this. You're in their corner. That they would not give up. I thank you so much for including broken vessels like us in your plans. If any of us can be an encouragement to 
to anybody going through these types of struggles, God, I pray that you would help us to be bold to do so. That you would just minister to each heart standing here this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.